We are about to enter chapter 9 in Romans. And when we are on this journey through Romans, it has this cadence to it where we have had some really microscopic words and phrases that we have looked at and that we have identified the tensions in and that we have said this is what we need to pay attention to here. And then we get to chapter 9 and Paul switches gears and chapter 9 through 11 is a switch that we need to pay attention to because it's in here. And it's a switch that talks about who's in. Who gets to be in? And if we do our, play our cards right, we're going to finish chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 33 today. Who's excited about that? That's why I was thinking maybe I should sit, but I can't. <laughs> so, but before we get started, I want to ask you guys something. And I want to ask you this. Where do you come from? Really, I'm asking, where do you come from? What's, that's it. I'm going to let you interpret it. Where do you come from? Germany. 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 California. California. Sweden. Sweden. New York. York. Vietnam. Vietnam. Poland. Poland. Go Polskis. That's right. My maiden name is Matsko. So my dad was half German and half Polish. Sometimes when we think about where we come from, it grounds us into some kind of identity, doesn't it? Does anybody, have you ever done any of that family lineage stuff where you, I don't know why I thought I could ever sit down. I'm, <laughs> have you ever done any of that family lineage stuff where you get to a place where you see something amazing about your heritage? Does anybody have anybody famous in their heritage? Mike, you do? Who? Monks. Monks, famous monks. That's amazing. Huh, anybody else? Or something that is cool about your family? Stephen? The actual Clark is from your heritage? You're a descendant of him? (laughs) That's okay, we won't hold it against you. That's fascinating. Chrissy, did you have something fascinating in your history? Wow. I will repeat that for you. Her father did some genealogy, some history, and a few grandfathers back, they started the Missouri Synod Church. He was part of starting a church movement. Woo, that's powerful to be in the lineage of starting a, I, of a church movement. I was thinking about this, and someone did line, uh, the lineology. That's not the right word, but you know what I mean. Maybe I should sit down. Um, Genealogy on my mother's side went back to 1747 or something like that. And it is believed that one of my relatives was on the Titanic. So that's kind of cool. And then, but we don't really know that. And yeah, yeah, we really don't know that. And then 
um, my great-great-great-great-grandmother was the first white woman to canoe down the Chippewa River in Wisconsin. Isn't that cool? That's super cool. I like that one. I tell that story all the time because she is an explorer. She is an adventurer. And I hang on to that. I'm like, that's my people. That's my people. I want to go where I haven't been before. I want to explore. I want to discover and all those kinds of things. And so, but when we tell these stories and we say these things, these are my people, it's kind of like we can hold up our papers and a little bit say, this is who I am. This is who I am. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Unless it takes precedence over Jesus telling you who you are. Right? It's kind of the way it goes. So in this chapter 9 through 11 journey, we start with chapter 9, and we will see Paul settle the debate of who's in. Who has the right papers? Israel... The nation of Israel knew they were in. How did they know that? Because God said, you are my chosen people. You are in. They were declared as God's chosen. But what about the Gentiles, which is most of us in this room? As we move ahead, keep in mind, what we're about to read is built on what Mark preached last week, the end of chapter 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Paul is writing this. He says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then he moves into this, this, these three chapters about our history and who's in. It's amazing to me that he makes that switch. But it's so important that we remember nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul's love for people just continues. And this is the tension. The tension Paul is bumping up against is those who believe because they're descendants of Jacob. Those who say, I am um, a, be- I'm a believer in God, Yahweh, therefore I am chosen, therefore I need not do anything more. They don't need anything else to save them. And Paul comes in with the message of the gospel. That's a tension. That's a tension. Imagine... Imagine this. Judaism is the religion. And sure, there's other religions. There's pagan religions. um, But one of the controversies about Jesus was that he was being seen as replacing what they knew to be true for hundreds of years. They knew they were the chosen people. They knew it. And Jesus comes in, and he comes on the scene, and it says, there's a new way. This man, Jesus, has come to fulfill the law, and you need to change. Sons of Abraham. Who wants to tell the sons of Abraham that they need to change? I don't. You need to change. There's a new way. You need to reposition your hearts and your minds to follow him. It's so radical. It's so radical. It is like trying to move the steer the Titanic. It just how do you move the nation of Israel to thinking a new way? And in the process, telling them, what you've done has been good, but it's not the end of the story. Which I think they would say, you're telling me what I'm doing is wrong. Who wants to be told what they're doing is wrong? If I'm told something I'm doing is wrong, I kick and scream and get really mad and pout like a two-year-old. And it might take a week before I come around to thinking, maybe even longer, that maybe they have a point. 
Imagine how the people of Israel felt. Our promises are theirs too because Paul is saying he's inviting Gentiles in. Gentiles are making up a part of the church. And so Paul is, and so the Israelites, you can imagine them going, wait a minute. The promises that were promised to us, the nation of Israel, you are now saying that they get those promises too? We have to share those promises not only do we have to share them, but you know who you're talking about, right? These Gentiles are heathens. They're pagans. They don't know God. They don't follow God. They get the same promises that we've been working towards our whole lives and for generation. Who's in? Who's in is the question at hand. Who gets to say? Who gets to say? Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Who gets to say that? Paul begins in Romans chapter 9, verse 2, by expressing deep emotion for his family of origin because Paul is from the nation of Israel. So these are his people that he's talking to. He's talking to his own family about this very issue. And we read in verses 2 and verses 3, he says this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. His kinsmen, according to the flesh. He would give anything for them to know Christ. He would give anything. And then he says in verses 6 through 8, for not all, this is where it's like, okay, everyone, put on your armor, because here it comes. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. Say, what? But through Isaac shall your offspring be named, which is a quote from Genesis 21, where God is talking to Abraham. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The children of the promise. The promise that Abraham's descendants will be as many as the stars. It's not where you came from that guarantees you the promise. That should be good news. That should be good news. Because not every one of us has Lewis and Clark in our history. They can't show their birth certificates and say, well, we're from the line of Christ. I mean, what kind of badge would you wear with that? In verse 5, it says that they were from the lineage of Christ, and so therefore, they're in. That is something they use to defend their position. Their birthright does not provide salvation. You can see why they would call Paul a traitor. You can see why they would stone him. Imagine going to your family and saying, you guys have it all wrong. This is not the way to do it. We need to do this way. Talk about being the black sheep. I mean, that would immediately ostracize you. But there was something, I believe, that they couldn't deny about Paul. <laughs> they could not deny his heart, his sorrow, his anguish, 
his love for them. Love was his motivation. If anyone ever has to tell you something hard, and it's motivated by love, it rides a different wave to your heart, doesn't it? It comes in at a different speed. It comes in in a different way. And you might kick and scream. I will kick and scream still. But somehow, my spirit knows it's truth. I'm open to listening when it comes in love. And this is Paul's motivation. He loves them. And then Paul moves into this history lesson and sheds light on whom God calls chosen. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca. And he talks about Rebecca's twins, Jacob and Esau. He comes into this section in chapter 9 where he, he goes through these things that, the, that the, his people, his, his family of origin knows about. And verse 11, we get to this place where you kind of go, wait, what? And here's what it says. Though they were not, they, the twins, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born, means they were still in the womb, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, that, of who he chooses, to be, who he calls his chosen, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it's very important, not because of works, not because of where you came from, but because of him who calls. She was told, Rebecca, the older one will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. <laughs> okay, does that make anyone go, wait, God hated Esau? Does it make anyone think, what's that about besides me? How can God hate? I thought he was all love. What does this mean that he hated Esau? But here's what I found, and I hope that this word won't hang us up. It's not contradicting the love of God. Not at all. A couple of points and a couple of reasons. One is just the word, the semantics. When we hear the word hate, well, let's back up a minute. Like, say, for instance, the word mystery. When we use the word mystery in our la- in just in the world, we talk about it's a mystery. What are we saying? We're saying, I don't know. We're saying, I don't know. I'll never know. I don't know if, if there's a way to know. It's a mystery. It's unknown. When the Bible talks about mystery, what it's talking about is that Beth and I don't know, but God knows. And God will reveal it at his perfect timing. It's a revelation that's coming, but we're just unaware of it. But it's not completely unknown because God knows. This word hate, we think of it and we go, when you hate someone, I don't know, when my kids were little, we wouldn't let them say hate. We were pretty legalistic. We wouldn't let them say hate, and we wouldn't let them say stupid. Those are the two words that we wouldn't let them say. Now I say those all the time, and I probably should take a little bit of my own advice. But when we see that word, we think of like an angered disgust. We think of this deep, deep dislike. We, I don't even know how to explain hate, but when you, when you talk about it, your face kind of crunches up, and you're like, oh, I hate that. Okay, let's hate lima beans. I hate lima beans. Now I'm actually eating a lot of lima beans. But, you know, I don't know. What do you hate? I don't know. But you, you can feel it. There's something that goes on inside of you that you go, oh, I hate that. I hate that. 
when God says he hates Esau, the first point to know is what he's saying is that he's just, he's opposing him. He's saying, I'm not for what Esau is for. I'm not with him. He's not with me. That's what he's saying. It's a denial of special privileges or a denial of protection. And why would he say this about Esau? Why would he deny him promise and protection? Well, the second thing to note here is that Scripture here is not talking about an individual. The heritage that follows Esau, the descendants of Esau, become the nation of Edom. And if you look through Genesis to Malachi, and, and it's mentioned in New Testament areas too, 138 times. I don't know, Scott knows better than I did. Scott sat with me on Friday and did all the research on Edom. I needed to know this stuff. But it's a lot that we see over and over and over how the nation of Edom opposed Israel, opposed God's people. Here in the scriptures, Paul is saying and reminding them that God opposes those who oppose his children. God, this nation, this Edoms, this includes people like the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Hittites. Just put an ite on the end of the group and it probably is somebody who opposed the nation of Israel and, his, and the children of, of God. But God opposes and doesn't give protection to those who want to hurt his children. Why? The never-ending love. The love of God is so fierce for us that he opposes anybody who's out to hurt us. And so he opposes Esau. It says in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, I think that's it. Is that it? No? Hang on. There it is. Thank you. Long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. Is that a promise? I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. Think about this song that we sang. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You've been so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You've been so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, still, Lord, you gave yourself away. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. He is for his people. And he hopes, his will is that none should perish. He's a protector. He's a protector. And he protects those that he calls his people. We move on into verses 
18, 21, and Paul is kind of reiterating over and over that God is sovereign when it comes to this, that we don't get to decide who's in and who's out. He does. And in that, he says a couple more verses that are kind of difficult. He says, verse 18, when he's talking about the Pharaoh, that he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He hardened Pharaoh's heart who opposed God. He has mercy on whomever he wills. Verse 21, he's talking about the potter's rights. And he he goes into this place where he says, who are you to say what the potter can make? The potter can make what he wants. He can make an honorable vessel if he wants, or he can make a dishonorable vessel if he wants. And I'm reading these, and the first time through I'm reading these, I told Mark, I said, I really don't want this chapter. Because... Where I was, I was sitting in a place where I would avoid these things because I would say, does God hate me? Does he have mercy on me? Or is he hardening my heart? I would say, what if he's making me, made me for dishonorable use? How do you know? How do you know what he's made you for? But the forced study that comes with preaching and that wrestles with your heart, it came to this for me. It doesn't say he's doing these things. It's just that he has the power to. What Paul is enlightening for us in chapter 9 is God's sovereignty. He's got this. He knows He sees. He's created. He's in control of everything. He's the source of all power. He has authority over everything. Everything that exists falls under his domain. He gets to decide. It's all his. It's not saying he's doing this. He is reminding the reader. He's reminding the recipients of this letter. Don't forget, God is the one who chooses. God is the one who's in control. He gets to decide. He gets to decide, and that means he gets to decide that his sovereignty, he wills everybody would be included. There's no objection because he's sovereign. He gets to decide, and his will is to include everyone. This gives hope to the Gentiles. Come on, somebody. The non-Jews, the Edomites, the Egyptians, the Philistines, these are our descendants. And what place did we have? We, weren't, we didn't have a place of notability. It was a place of, of pagan worship and a place of, of being the lowest of the lows and of being slaves and of being outcasts and being put out and, and saying, Gentiles, you're unclean. But God had a different plan, and it was his will to include everyone. Everyone who chooses. And I believe even Esau, even any of the people who oppose the nation of Israel, they get to choose. They get to choose whether they're in or not. And then Paul quotes the prophet Hosea, and it says this, Hosea 2.23 Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. This is the promise. 
This is our promise. This is ours. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. Paul is saying in chapter 9 to the Israelites and to the Gentiles, this idea of we're all in. It reminds me of this song by the Youngbloods, probably in the 60s, I'm guessing, I'm not sure, but it goes, come on people now, smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. This is, this is the plan. <laughs> Simplified in my own words. But this is the plan. Paul experiences great sorrow and unceasing anguish because he can see people missing it. He can see his own family missing it. How many of us have family members who are missing it? And it just causes great anguish and great sorrow. He, they're missing that Jesus is the ultimate promise and the ultimate example of God's sovereignty and perfect plan. And Paul wraps up chapter 9. I mean, there's so much in here, and we could come back and visit some of these things. But I felt like the Lord wanted us to get started with the big picture today. And so we come to the end of chapter 9, and we have this verse. Because they, the Israelites, did not pursue it, which is the law, by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, which I believe is a quote from Isaiah. I have to relook that up. But Paul brings it full circle. God is sovereign. He gets to decide. Everybody's in because of Jesus. And he's calling it out that people will stumble over it because it's Jesus. It's, pro it's prophesied that people will stumble over it. He writes with a heavy heart and a conviction of truth that all people would become God's beloved. See, you and me, we, we become his beloved the moment we say yes to him. Not based on our heritage, as good as it can be. And it's not that our heritage doesn't mean anything. It's just not where our salvation comes from. It's not where our identity comes from. Your heritage does not determine your destiny. Your family of origin does not determine your family of destiny. <laughs> no matter where you came from or what you've done or haven't done, God has made a way. And that's the good news Paul is trying to tell us here in chapter 9. He made a way for the Jews who tried to work their way in. He made a way for the Gentiles who opposed God and by all standards were out. He made a way for us. Whether you've loved him your whole life, whether you loved him and fell away, he's made a way. Whether you've opposed him, whether you've hated him, in your own sense of the word hate, he's made a way. He's made a way for everyone. It's his will and it's his sovereignty that chose that. Is that beautiful? By faith, you become a promise fulfilled. By faith, when you say yes to Jesus, you become a star in the heavens 
that represents Abraham's descendants. You're grafted in. It's the adoption that Paul was talking about earlier in Romans. You're in. You're in. A member of the family. A member of the family where nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. We, you, and me are the promise of Abraham, God's promise fulfilled. And I want to leave you with this out of 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Wait, I want to back that up just a minute. You. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is your heritage. This is yours. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are a promise fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. First of all, I'm just so grateful for your word. And I'm grateful for your plan. And I'm grateful for your sovereignty that we don't have to decide who's in and who's out. You got this. It's all in your hands. And as a person who once didn't know you and once didn't have your mercy, I'm so grateful that you've made a way for us. Thank you. Thank you. You are good. You're so good. Thank you for your everlasting love that never ends. <laughs> and Lord, I pray that if there's, there's anyone in here who maybe kind of thought that their history or their heritage or the things they've done or haven't done have kind of tainted their relationship with you, I pray that that would be severed now and that the truth would, would be revealed to their spirit, spirit unto spirit, that they are a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a person for your own possession in a good way that loves to be loved by you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.
See 